Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the news that Target and other retailers are being forced to close stores in wink-wink certain communities due to rampant brazen shoplifting is what's known as a story too good to check. That's to say it serves so many corporate capitalist and, frankly, racist narratives that its relationship to reality is beside the point. Judd Legum at Popular Information looked into it. He found the store Target is closing in Harlem, here in New York, had fewer incidents of shoplifting reported this year than other Target locations in Upper Manhattan. And Target is about to open a new store just a mile and a half away. The store Target is closing in San Francisco had fewer shoplifting incidents, according to police department records filed by officers and members of the public, than in areas around at least three other stores in downtown San Francisco that will remain open. The LA Times' Michael Hiltzik is one of vanishingly few national reporters to suggest that if media care about crime— If they care about people having things stolen from them, maybe they could care less about toasters and more about lives. As in the billions of dollars that are snatched from working people's pockets every day by companies in the form of wage theft. Paying less than legal wages, not paying for overtime, stealing tips, denying breaks demanding people work off the clock before and after shifts, and defining workers as independent contractors to deny them benefits. Home Depot just settled a class action lawsuit for $72.5 million, while their CEO went on Fox to talk about how shoplifting means we're becoming a lawless society. There is legislative pushback. New York Governor Kathy Hochul has added wage theft to the legal definition of larceny, allowing for stronger prosecutions. But such efforts face headwind from corporate media telling us to be mad about the rando taking toilet paper from the Walgreens, but not the executive who's skimming your paycheck every two weeks. Not to be too poetic, but corporate thieves don't need masks as long as corporate media provide them. We talked about wage theft with Rodrigo Camarena. He's the director of the immigrant justice group Justicia Lab and co-author with Cristobal Gutierrez from Make the Road New York of the article How to End Wage Theft and Advance Immigrant Justice that appeared earlier this month on nonprofitquarterly.org. He's also co-creator of Reclamo, a tech-enabled initiative to combat wage theft. We'll hear that conversation today on Counterspin. But first, a quick look back at some recent press. Tens of thousands of climate protesters gathered in midtown Manhattan on September 17th, kicking off Climate Week as President Biden arrived in New York to speak at the U.N., These protests, some of the biggest since COVID, had a pointed message largely directed at Biden himself, end fossil fuels. 
As FAIR's Olivia Riggio noted, the Biden White House has passed historic climate legislation through the Inflation Reduction Act, which seeks to create clean energy jobs and increase investments in renewables and build infrastructure to support resilience. But at the same time, oil and gas production are still expanding. This year, the U.S. exported a record amount of petroleum and was also the biggest liquefied natural gas exporter in the world. The Biden administration greenlit the ConocoPhillips Willow Project, a new oil drilling venture in Alaska. Meanwhile, the scientific consensus is as straightforward as it is bleak. We are at imminent risk of surpassing the internationally agreed-upon threshold of 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's 2023 report warned that global emissions need to be cut by almost half by 2030 if we're going to meet this goal. The urgency with which we need to bring down emissions is clear, but as Riggio highlights, News media continue to muddy the waters and encourage apathy in the way that they focus on protesters' tactics rather than their demands. Bloomberg ran a piece headed, The Big Climate March Returns in an Era of Soup-Throwing Protests, that spent more time analyzing the psychology behind different forms of demonstration than the dire consequences if protesters' demands are not met. The piece compared traditional climate marches to more disruptive but still nonviolent direct action tactics utilized by groups like Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil, and Blockade Australia. The piece even outlined why many activists feel they need to engage in more extreme demonstrations to gain more attention. And it cited the very problem that it's a part of, quote, The rise of disruptive protests is in part a reaction to the feeling among some activists that traditional mass actions aren't effective. Marches, even quite large ones, don't always get widespread media coverage, limiting their usefulness in garnering attention. Close quote. A single paragraph centered protesters' demands in the form of a quote from a local youth activist who said that marchers want Biden to, quote, stop approving fossil fuel projects and leases, phase out fossil fuel production on public lands and waters, and to declare a climate emergency so that he could halt crude oil exports and investments in fossil fuel projects abroad, close quote. Beyond that citation, there is no acknowledgement of the reality that these demands are in line with scientific consensus and the UN's Paris Agreement. Instead, Bloomberg moved on to questioning mass protests March's ability to change policy, relying on the expertise of a cognitive psychologist who says millions of people protested the Iraq invasion, but it happened anyway. After this pre-event article lamented that large-scale marches often don't receive a lot of media coverage, a follow-up piece offered only a short recap, which also did not elaborate on why and how quickly we need to limit fossil fuel use. Bloomberg's own reporting doesn't bear out the notion that a lack of substantive media attention is the fault of protest tactics. When the Just Stop Oil protesters threw soup at Van Gogh's famous 
and glass-protected sunflowers painting in 2022, Bloomberg covered the demonstration in detail, being sure to specify the brand of tomato soup thrown at the painting and where and when Van Gogh painted it. But it didn't acknowledge the existence or the severity of the climate crisis or fossil fuels' central role in it. Failing to clearly spell out the connection between protesters' actions and the threats behind them leads to framing of demonstrations as symbolic or hysterical. In reality, protesters' demand to end fossil fuels is concrete and it's in line with scientific consensus and humane public policy. If corporate news media are going to run away from connecting those dots, then it really doesn't matter what tactics protesters use. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you every week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. Investigation by the National Retail Federation found that the effect of store theft by shoplifters and by employees is largely on par with historical trends. But mere data don't stand a chance against corporate media's energetic interest in the smash-and-grab phenomenon, which they confidently explain is the reason that Target, for instance, is closing stores in what one news account called a series of liberal cities. News media can make something a crisis, a thing you should worry about when they want to. Video can be found. Harmed people can be interviewed. But what if there's no CCTV? What if the harm isn't being done erratically, sporadically, caught on camera, but every day in documents, in tax filings, in one-on-one unrecorded conversations between employees who need their job and bosses who want their profit rate. News media interested in crime, its impact on human beings, on society, its cost to the economy, would be interested in wage theft. The more than $50 billion a year stolen from workers in this country. But when is the last time your nightly local news talked about that? or encouraged you to be outraged and concerned and move to action about that. There are efforts to address this ongoing, mundane thievery, but so far it seems to be under the radar of news outlets that, in every other way, suggest they care very much about crime all the time. Rodrigo Camarena is director of Justicia Lab and co-author with Cristobal Gutierrez of the article How to End Wage Theft and Advance Immigrant Justice that appeared earlier this month on nonprofitquarterly.org. He is also co-creator of Reclamo, a tech-enabled initiative to combat wage theft. He joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Rodrigo Camarena. Hi, Janine. Thank you so much for having me. I don't think it's crazy to say that many people truly don't know what wage theft is, how it happens, what it is. What would you have us know about, first of all, the scale and the impact of wage theft? What does it look like? Sure. You know, wage theft is so common and so ubiquitous that we don't really 
consider it in our day-to-day lives. But like you mentioned, it's this huge problem. It's actually the largest form of theft. But when you compare it to burglaries, armed robberies, motor vehicle thefts combined, and it happens whenever a worker is just deprived of the wages that they're owed lawfully. So that could mean not being paid a minimum wage, not being paid overtime, having deductions from someone's paycheck made, or just not paying someone. You know, they show up at the job one day and the person that hired them isn't there anymore. Saying to honor sick leave or other benefits is another form of wage theft. So it's very common. It's a term that we use as advocates to kind of underline what is happening here, which is that you're being deprived of what you're owed. It's being taken from you, but it's not a legal term per se. Yeah. You know, I always think of the older sibling that holds your hand and makes you hit yourself and says, why are you hitting yourself? You know, (laughs) it's like something is going on, but you're not allowed to complain about it because somehow it's your fault. Somehow you didn't take that pay stub home and say, oh, wait, I'm owed this and I didn't get this. It seems like it's a very invisible kind of crime. Yeah. That's right. It's something that happens on a daily basis, actually. And in some sectors and industries, it's more likely for you to be a victim of wage theft than to be paid your full wage. Mm -hmm. And it's a problem that disproportionately impacts low-wage workers, women, and immigrants, uh, and in particular, undocumented immigrants who often don't feel like they can stand up for themselves or request what they are owed lawfully because of their status. So I think there's a lot of misinformation about your rights as a worker uh, that might prevent people from standing up for themselves and, and defending these rights. But this is part of the challenge in addressing this problem. Well, I wanted to ask you, there does seem to be a particular impact on immigrants here. And it's it's not to say that it doesn't affect low-wage workers across the board, but immigrants are in a particularly precarious situation. Yeah. That's right. And, you know, in the state of New York where I am, and I think this is probably the case in many other states, it's more likely, twice more likely for you to experience wage theft if you're foreign born than if you're native born. So, you know, this makes complete sense when you think about immigrant labor in this country. It's often, you know, some of the toughest jobs that a lot of people don't want to do, but that immigrants are willing to do because they need income. They're, They're here to work and contribute. And that puts them in a precarious position because it allows the employer to not only pay them very little, in many cases less than they're lawfully owed, but also exposes them to other forms of exploitation and harassment. You know, we can talk about sexual harassment. We can talk about discrimination because of language, of country of origin, uh, gender or sex. And, and, and these are overlapping issues that really do a lot of harm to people that we depend on for some of the most critical industries in our country. Well, and I know that victims often don't even understand that they were supposed to be paid for overtime or they were supposed to get sick leave. There's an absence of education from the jump so that workers don't even know what they're entitled to. That's right. Very few people will tell you what the minimum wage is, both federally or at the state level. Um, It's difficult to know sometimes that there's been a change to sick leave laws in the state or, you know, wages. Uh, And so much of the problem is really about getting this information out there more proactively. In the state of New York, again, where I am, it's actually required that an employer communicate what 
your wages and if that wage has changed and they can be fined uh, for not doing so. But this is not the case across the country and it's, and it's often not the case even when it is mandated by law. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I've read about efforts to combat wage theft, and there is legislation in the works, and I hope to talk about it, Kathy. Hogel here in New York is saying wage theft is now larceny under New York penal law, which means that prosecutors can seek stronger penalties. But what are your thoughts in general in terms of the legal This is a crime. Theft is a crime. But what are your thoughts on the state of the legal response to this problem? Yeah, absolutely. Theft is a crime. And I think we need to understand it as not just a crime that impacts workers who have been victims of wage theft, but it's a crime that impacts all of us. Mm -hmm. You know, wage theft contributes to poverty. You know, Department of Labor study of California and New York showed this a couple of years back. It contributes to people's need to use public benefits or welfare. And it steals from city and state tax revenues. So it's a crime that doesn't just hurt the most vulnerable amongst us, but it's a crime that impacts all of us indirectly. So we need to treat it as a societal crime. We need to treat it as, as, a, as a severe act of injustice that it is. And I think raising the cost for employers is certainly one approach. In some municipalities, businesses can lose their licenses if they are found to be repeat offenders. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of policy solutions, but I think part of what we need to understand is that there's also a a cultural expectation at this point that if you are either a low-wage worker, a new worker, someone has been marginalized by society, that you shouldn't expect more than than what you might be paid by an employer. And I think that's wrong. Right. And, you know, I want to just pull you back in terms of the problem that sometimes folks will say, oh, they won this case. But sometimes even when you win, workers don't collect. I just wanted to just bring you back to the to the reality of it, that even the law may say, yes, um, you know, wage theft happened here, and it still might not be possible to make, you know, workers whole. That's right. In many cases, even when an employer is found guilty of having committed wage theft, they might then declare bankruptcy. And in some cases, start a new company where they go ahead and repeat these same offenses. There are some efforts to try to hold assets accountable and put them on liens in mm-hmm. the event that you know a business has declared bankruptcy. But you're right; the problem is also structural. You know, we punish businesses after the fact. There isn't a lot of prevention that's happening during the event of wage theft. Right? Mm-hmm. Many folks report after they've had their wages stolen or they've been inspired by their employer. So I think there needs to be a lot of work at the local and state level to to encourage people to report wage theft, to encourage people to know and understand their rights and find solutions while they're being victimized. Right. And then I want to ask, I mean, you know, the question is like, why do workers who are already so vulnerable, who are already have their whole life like hanging by the thread of this job, why do they have to be the one to bring the complaints, you know? Um, And so I know that that brings us back to how Hostesia Lab worked with Make the Road New York to develop this tool, this Reclamo tool. And I want to ask you to talk about the need that you saw for that and then talk a little bit about this Reclamo tool and what it does. Sure. So the Reclamo app was a collaborative effort between 
us at Hushishi Lab, which is a program of Pro Bono Net and Make the Road New York, a worker, uh, worker center here in, in, in New York City, in New York State. And I think the need we saw was twofold. One, in the short term, there aren't enough lawyers to help address every wage theft claim or enough investigators at the state level to investigate these claims. So we said, how can we use technology that one, help someone identify if they've been a victim of wage theft and two, file a wage theft claim in New York State, but also do things that are, perform strategies that we know are effective at recovering stolen wages, like writing a demand letter, which is typically written by an attorney, or just calling the employer and having a structured conversation around how they can settle this matter. So Reclama does all those three things. It files a complaint with the state of New York. It produces a demand letter, which is something that a lawyer might make. And it helps you have a conversation with an employer around uh, what wages you're owed and how they can settle the matter. Um, and I think in the long term, what we're really trying to do with this tool is empower non-lawyers to feel comfortable navigating this, this, this very convoluted process and also give advocates data that they can use to tackle the structural problem here uh, to inform enforcement. You know, in some cases, advocates like Make the Road have approached the Department of Labor and said, hey, we see a problem in the car wash industry. Can we approach this problem together and force this problem together? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's been effective as a strategy as well. So there's a number of, 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 of solutions that we're trying to uh, put forward with this initiative, and we're very excited about the response so far. Do you see any role uh, at the federal level for this? I mean, I just it seems such an across the board problem. And I read like about, you know, Maura Healy. I read about people and it sounds like people are saying we're going to pass some legislation to make crime illegal, you know, um, you know, um, in terms of wage theft should already be illegal. And so is it a matter of enforcement and do you see any any role at all at the federal level here definitely i mean the federal government can do a lot one they can start by raising the federal minimum wage which has mm -hmm. been seven dollars and 25 cents for for decades um but they can invest more in enforcement they can invest more in public education they can increase the cost to employers uh, that might commit wage that there be repeat offenders um, and they can help advocates by sharing data proactively, uh, both federal data and state level data around this problem. You know, there's a lot of information that we still don't have about the scale of this problem. Uh, and I think if, if there's you know, better collaboration between advocates and government, we can really make a dent on this issue. I can't really see a more um, compelling story for news media. I just, I just, people struggling. They're reporting every day about people's difficulties. And the idea that somehow they would not include the fact that their employers are systematically keeping their wages, which while they're out of the other side of their mouth fighting to make those wages lower, that they're keeping some of the wages that these people have actually earned. I just I don't understand why that is not a um, meaningful story. It's a story about like crime and violence, frankly. People's lives are being affected here. And so I just wanted to finally ask you, like, what do you make of media coverage of, of, of wage theft, but also just of the conditions around it that allow it, that support it, 
Is there anything that you would change about the way reporters approach the issue? You know, I think we have to recognize that wage theft and worker exploitation is in many cases built into the business models of, of many industries. You know, uh, our food is relatively inexpensive given the amount of labor it takes to, to grow and, and, and pick it. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our restaurants and other services, uh, domestic work, um, it's, it's severely undercompensated and that's by design in many cases. But it's also it's something that you know we don't talk about. We don't talk about immigrant labor being the backbone of a number of industries, and 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 but we what we do talk about is immigrants, um, you know, I guess on the on the on the right stealing jobs and 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 incurring more costs for society. But we don't talk about the subsidy that they provide to many businesses and many industries. We don't talk about our dependence on low wage work. And I think that's that's the reality that many Americans and policymakers don't want to address because it's it's complicated and it and it forces a conversation around um, comprehensive immigration reform and workers' rights more broadly, which I know is something that that in many cases is is is, is just not popular to talk about. Well, who would reporters talk to that might change the story that they tell? You know, I think. Talking to large uh, agricultural producers, mm-hmm. um, talking to uh, restaurant groups, uh, talking to uh, you know construction companies that in many cases employ immigrant workers to to get the job done at a certain cost, I think would be would be valuable. Um, we don't scrutinize the cost of labor in many of these industries. Even as consumers, we don't want to know that you know our food was grown and picked by someone that was making you know eight dollars an hour, was being paid by each piece of of crop that they harvested. Uh, we don't want to know that someone that is in the service industry isn't getting paid an, uh, an hourly minimum wage or getting paid on 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 tips or or not being paid at all in many cases. Uh, because they're maybe earning their ability to one day perform that job. So I think there's a lot of different approaches that we can take to understanding this problem, but it, it does require understanding how businesses have built this into their business model, as well as the societal impact at large uh, when it comes to you know how families are, are, are affected and also how, how states are, are undercut when it comes to the collection of, of, of tax revenue. Well, we've been speaking with Rodrigo Camarena. He's director of Justicia Lab online at justicialab.org. And you can learn about that Reclamo tool that we're talking about at maketheroadny.org. Thank you so much, Rodrigo Camarena, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks so much, Janine. Happy to be here. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. That's also the place to learn about what else FAIR does and to support the work if you are able and so inclined. The show is engineered by Riley Bear. I'm Janine Jackson. 
Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.